0: The Blaze Radio Network. On demand.
1: The Glenn Beck Program. James Shaw Jr. You remember that name? April 22nd, Nashville Waffle House. The attacker shot and killed four people. If not for Shaw, it would have been much, much worse. He's an amazing American. I don't know the parents of James Shaw Jr. Whoever you are, hold your head high. You raised successfully a Captain America. Somebody fire up the cloning machine. The world needs more human beings like James Shaw Jr. The Glenn Beck
0: Program. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. An honor to be with you. Thanks for coming back. If you've listened before, and if you're new hopefully you're looking for that voice of patriotism of freedom an american muslim who holds no punches in confronting the islamist establishment who realizes that reform will only come when we as american muslims begin to address the root cause of terror and that root cause is not the violence is not just the militancy it is the ideology of political islam and its supremacy I want to talk to you about a study that came out this week that, you know, to those of us who've been working on this issue for some time, it is no surprise. But for many of you may say, oh, my God, I never realized the financial impact. And yes, a study came out just a couple days ago, published in a number of venues that basically said that the United States has spent roughly two point eight trillion dollars in fighting terrorism since 9-11. Analysis from the nonpartisan Stimson Center, a think tank focused on security issues. Basically, you know, you can argue about plus or minus, what, maybe we'll we'll give you half a trillion or a trillion based on whether you think there's things that uh, uh, were unrelated to the war on terror that were lumped into that study. But they found that the counterterrorism spending reached a peak of $260 billion a year in 2008 at the height of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, it declined to $175 billion by 2017, though that's still more than 10 times the amount spent in 2001. Counterterrorism accounted for 14% of discretionary spending in 2017, down from 22% in 2008. And they called it Overseas Contingency Operations, totaling $1.7 trillion of the Defense Department budget. So I've talked to you so much about strategy, about how we approach the problem, And yet, day to day, we continue to say, well, you know, Zudi, the reform movement sounds like a great thing, but it is hard. You're pushing up mud uphill. You've got uh, domination of uh, Islamic countries by dictatorships. You want revolution. What are you going to do? This study should clarify for you why it matters to you. You may say, oh, it's ill-advised money. We shouldn't have spent it to start with. We should spend less. Okay. How about we take just 1% of that? You do the math. How many billions of dollars is 1% of 2.7 trillion? Just take $1. $1, 1, One cent on the dollar. $1 on the Ben Franklin and spend it on the advancement of the ideas of liberty and freedom, the advancement of universal human rights across the Muslim majority world and begin to work with nascent movements in the streets of Iran, in the streets of Syria, in the streets, not with weapons, not militarily. Most of that money was spent on a -a whack-a-mole program. So whatever you you believe about what I tell you week to week is this – A Muslim problem is an American problem. At the end of the day, I believe this is a problem that all of humanity is going to step up to because the Islamists want to dominate not only their countries, not only their region, but the world. And the theocrats will never stop until they either lose or are defeated or they're marginalized in their societies. And that ultimately... That ultimately is what we're trying to do at the Muslim Reform Movement. I'm trying to do here on Reform This Week to Week is address the issues and show all of you what the touch points are for for solutions where you mobilize those very communities themselves to come to the same conclusions about liberty, about the equality of men and women, about the equality of mankind with one another, the lack of tribalism, the, the... The elevation of critical thinking, the marginalization of oppressive thought, all these things need to become part of the mantra of, I think, some of the money that we spend. So, listen, I understand it is a tough sell for non-Muslims to say to themselves, why should we care or invest in Islamic reform? Why should our government policy, our blood and treasure, be spent on Islamic lands that are rooted for centuries in theocracy? Great questions. You shouldn't. But I think you should spend your money on national security. I think you should strategize on how best to address the problem at hand. So... You can be a penny wise and a pound foolish, and that's exactly what you're doing. You are through the Defense Department, and now, as this study shows, simple dollars, $3 trillion of our money has been lost in a sophisticated country-to-country, back-to-our-own-country whack-a-mole program. You're not treating the problem. So if you want to address the problem, you would begin To work with those on the ground that looks at a generational process of empowerment of women, empowerment of liberal thinkers, feminists, uh, um, those who believe in fighting apostasy laws, fighting blasphemy laws, fighting for secular society, fighting against the Islamic State identity, fighting against misogyny, fighting against tribalism, and fighting for free thinking. Where's the money being spent on that? Hopefully, President Trump, I think, will start to change things. We're seeing Heather Nauert now is running, will soon become the undersecretary on public diplomacy. And you finally have somebody who was in media. She was at Fox previously and I think understands the importance of public messaging, of public platforms, not just NPR and Voice of America, which have their role, but really confrontational thinking that empowers people to believe they have a voice, not just a voice that echoes an oppressive regime, but much, much different a voice that echoes the want, the true want of the people. That's where you should be spending your money. So if you look at return on investment, stay with me, stay with me. If you look at spending money that will be a penny-wise, and a pound-wise, not a pound-foolish, then you should begin to look at what we did in the Cold War, how we engaged those in Eastern Europe beyond the curtain, and then when the curtain fell down and the Soviet Empire fell apart, we still continue to help the establishment of free markets, democracies, republics, and those who share our values. The Cold War continues. We see what Russia is doing in the Ukraine. We see what they're doing in Syria. So no way did we win full stop the Cold War. We won the phase of the Cold War of the 20th century. And I think there's many other phases to be played out. But the way we spend our dollar is important. When I come back, I want to talk to you about what are some programs just financially that would make sense that the taxpayers would say, you know what, we're going to end up saving money. It's not going to be 2.8 trillion in ten more years. It's going to be half a trillion, 75 percent change saved, or it could be 20 trillion if you don't do what I'm going to tell you next. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This.
0: You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. blaze radio network don't miss the morning blaze with
1: doc necessities we have to give them shelter food water and medicine i disagree but there's an argument to be made but there is no argument for any reasonable person to say somebody breaks into a country and on top of all that other stuff you've given them we're going to give you free or
0: discounted college at taxpayer
1: expense the Morning Blaze, weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze
0: Radio Network. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. We're talking about the national security dollar. It's going to take me a while to convince you that Islamic reform is possible. It may not even happen during my time. But I do believe the secular state, the advancement of Muslim communities that believe in universal human rights, that reject theocracy, is possible in my lifetime. That's part of the pathway towards Islamic reform. It's not the end, but it is the pathway, the only pathway possible for Islamic reform. But when you see a study come out that says, oh my God, the American public has spent $3 trillion, to what end? ISIS is larger than ever. Uh, ISIS might be defeated, but the ISIS ideology of jihadism is larger than ever as Al-Qaeda now grows. Uh, failed states are increasing. So the threat will continue to regenerate unless you deal with the cancer, unless you deal with the root cause. We invest in our children's education because the cost to society is less. Their ability to thrive increases. I get it. Listen, I get it. The Islamic world is not your children. They're not Americans. We should spend money on our own society, our own communities, our own citizens who've taken an oath to protect this country, which nobody outside this country has taken. Amen. Amen. I'm all with you for a hawkish immigration policy, but yet welcoming those who share our values and having a tough vetting process, but welcoming those who come here because they want to be part of the American dream and believe in what America stands for. And I think they then become ambassadors for rejecting the very theocratic ideas that this country was founded on fighting. And now today that battle is happening within the House of Islam, against Islamists, political Islam, or Islamic theocracy. So the money that is being spent day in, day out to track and, and, and whack the moles from Algeria to Yemen, to Iran, to Hezbollah, to ISIS, to Iraq, to Afghanistan and Taliban. And we saw recently, just last week, churches bombed in Indonesia, Muslim-majority countries, that ra- one family was all radicalized and spread where the kids and the parents decided to become suicide bombers and they killed in broad daylight. Christians, minority in a 95 plus percent Islamic country and they killed them with suicide bombs inspired by ISIS. So where's this coming from? What does Indonesia have to do with the Arab Sunni Islamist battle? Well, the ideology spreading, if we're going to fight this, we need to invest. Yes, continue the military program, but ratchet down. Ratchet down the component that says we can even find these guys earlier and spend 1-2% of your dollar that you're spending today on the promotion of ideological values that confront the Islamists and empower movements of change. It may create more chaos, but I will tell you, with this barometer where you're measuring costs on a decade-by-decade basis, I am very confident. And we can study this. Put a little money into some seed money, into looking at uh, um, venture capital, if you will, for the country and national security. If you do venture capital research, I believe, yeah, I'm shooting from the hip, but this is pretty obvious to me, that if you spend money on empowering thousands of reform-minded leaders against the al-Azhar in Egypt, against the uh, Sunni, Wahhabi radical schools of thought in Riyadh, in Jeddah, in, in, in Mecca, in these countries and cities in which you have Wahhabi fundamentalist driving Islamic thought that then gets broadcast globally. If you start to work with the Saudi citizens or reformers, work with free market growth, think tanks, tens and tens if not hundreds of think tanks in the West that are purely focused on anti-Islamism, purely focused on shedding the light of day upon the Islamist organizations like the Brotherhood, Jamaat Islami, and other apologists, purely focused on abandoning the abuse of folks who have critical thinking against Islamist ideas and are called Islamophobes and bigots, begin to give voices and platforms to reformers, to anti-islamists be they're muslim or not be they muslim or non-muslim and i think you're going to start to see a return on your dollar i think you're going to start to see a metamorphosis no different than the great metamorphosis that allowed us to reform that allowed us to reform towards the wonderful nation that we have today that brought forth the revolutions in europe the revolutions in in america and is going to be a necessary part of a more wise fiscal responsibility. I don't want my sons and daughters and my grandkids fighting wars in Syria and Saudi Arabia against Iran and other schisms that have existed for over 1400 years. I want to help create the ideas that are planted that no longer allow them to become dependent upon oil and natural resources, but allow them to begin to create products that are ingenious, that are creative, that begin to marginalize the dependency upon their governments and begin to empower new ideas and new societies that are post-revolution. It may take a few revolutions, but the current state of dictatorships is not stable. Your dollars that are being spent to cozy up to some allies that might share our common enemies of rogue dictatorships while you declare appropriate war and antagonism with those who are your enemies who declared death to america like the iranians and others that makes sense that's that's fine but we can't turn a blind eye to the fact that the qataris the saudis the egyptian government the egyptian government says jihad can only be declared by the state and not by isis They're still drinking from the same poisonous trough of Islamist supremacy, but they just think the government should have a monopoly on it so that they can contain it and use it when they want it. But their militaries are still fighting jihad. If your money is going to be well spent, you need to defeat the idea of militant jihad, of armed jihad, of a military that acts with jihad. So just as the era of militaries in europe cheering onward christian soldiers as they did in the 10th and 11th century came to an end because of the enlightenment and the separation of church and state so too can an era of the end of the islamic jihadists can come and the ascendancy of the islamic secular of the non-islamic but the human universal human rights of a secular state can come forth That's the only way your money is going to be well spent. So begin investing in think tanks that are anti-Islamist. Begin looking at a strategy that empowers. And I think Secretary Pompeo, Heather Nauert, John Bolton, and others I think now will begin to say some of these things that we need to hear about a better, wiser spending on the war of ideas. With a ratcheted-back military that only deals with existential imminent threats rather than thinking that somehow cozy military relationship with dictators is gonna bring change. That won't. Helping on the ground those who share our ally, who share our values will bring change. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back.
0: Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser.
2: This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. Always great to be with you and uh, talk about the issues of the day. Now, I want to step back, take you into sort of to be a fly on the wall. East Lansing, Michigan, May 10th, 2018. Last week, around the country, we've got gubernatorial, senatorial, House elections all heating up. And uh, one of the things I've talked about uh, in this program before is how accountable should we hold Muslim candidates, regardless of party, Democrat, Republican, how accountable should we hold them to their clarity, their transparency about their approach to political Islam and Islamism? Is it enough that they condemn terrorism? Is it enough that they condemn Al-Qaeda and ISIS and radical groups by name even? Um, No, when we're talking about political ideology, your theopolitical ideology matters. And we may, if you run as a free market conservative, the socialist, collectivist ideas of your antagonists, of your counterparts, matters. So to call out a political ideology of what appears to be a certain theopolitical ideology of your opponent, if they happen to be Muslim, it's not about them being Muslim, it's about whether they have that particular Theopolitical ideology and Islamism is a political ideology. So just because your candidate, your counterpart happens to be Muslim and happens to have signed up with the Democratic Party or with the Republican Party doesn't mean that they cannot be accountable to whether they accept or reject Islamism. Does that mean that's a litmus test for every Muslim? Well, I think when, as we talked last segment, we're spending $3 trillion in the last 10 years encountering The root cause is, yeah, I think it matters. And um, Muslims, uh, I think, are not only the best assets and probably the most important assets, they can also be the most harmful in this battle because they give folks the imprimatur of being Muslim, so therefore their opinion about anything Islamic matters and means something. So, listen, I, as an American Muslim, believe that the ideology of the politicians that we battle. The leaders that represent us matters. And what I want to talk to you about today and what we'll talk about uh, in the next segment or two, let's look in a window into the Michigan gubernatorial election. Let's talk about what they just debated about, not specific issues of a candidate, but let's just talk about one thing that one of the candidates brought up and listen to the response of the other. So in that window into the gubernatorial race in Michigan, you will find a number of candidates. Uh, There was a debate forum that happened in East Lansing on May tenth, two 2018, and add that you had on the Republican side, uh, you had people like Bill Schwett, uh, Patrick Colbeck, Brian Coley, Jim Hines, and on the Democratic side, you had Uh, Bill Cobbs, Abdul Al-Sayed, Sheree Thandahar, and Gretchen Whitmer. So, as they sat debating, there was a little interchange that came about. And let's listen to that for a second, if you will. I'm going to play for you first a commentary from Mr. Kolbeck, in which he starts to talk about the threat and some of the issues related to the Muslim Brotherhood. And then we'll listen to the response from Mr. Al-Sayed. Now, I don't care what their policies are, what they each think, but there is something very instructive in the dodging and the and the lack of addressing the exact issue. You can talk about whether Mr. Kolbeck's talking when he talks about the Brotherhood, whether he's talking conspiracies or not. Uh, I obviously have talked significantly about the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups and the Muslim Brotherhood originating uh, founding members, as laid out in the memorandum, and... Colbeck actually talks about this in this uh, debate, but l- let me just let you listen to a few things that he said, and then let's look at the unbelievably patronizing response from Mr. Abdul Al Sayed. And frankly, this is one of those areas that got me
1: ticked off in regards to the fairness of the media. They pitched this as a comment around concern around the Muslim Brotherhood, as a concern with Muslims in general. Love Muslims is not an issue. The issue is with terrorist organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood. Is Sharia law instituting here in the state of Michigan a real Now,
2: concerned? here we have El Sayed responding.
1: I do solemnly swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state. That is the oath that, if any of us is elected, we will swear to. I take that oath particularly seriously because it guarantees me two things. A, the right to pray as I choose to pray. And for me, that means that I put my face on the ground 34 times a day. Some people choose not to pray at all. And all of those things are equally protected under this incredible document of ours. But in Article 6, it also tells us. So now see, he's
2: giving him a constitutional lecture. Shall be held over. A question to serve about the Muslim Brotherhood. The turns into that's a lecture the to the people in the audience in Michigan. My
1: father came to this country believing in an ideal that says that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal. Now, I knew that when I decided to run as the first Muslim American ever run for governor that I would
2: face the ugliness of white supremacy. So the now, the ugliest of white supremacy when asked about the brotherhood
1: the that it sorts to or the constitution they defend but the fact is, is that I serve my country every day, calling it the ah, highest
2: ideal. Never talk the about the Brotherhood. You question his service. It is
1: such an incredible
2: you question his service simply because Colbeck, one of the one of the other candidates, questioned his links to the Muslim Student Association, which El Sayyid was obviously involved in as a student, and then became an apologist for a number of Islamist organizations in Michigan. Did El Sayyid stand up? Now, for you Muslim friends out there, you're going to get these questions. What should the response be? You identify whether you agree with the ideology of the Muslim Student Association. Identify Islamism as an ideological threat. Identify what your position is, separate or apart from Islamism. Bernie Sanders during the campaign was called a socialist. His response wasn't to talk about him being patronized uh, by being excluded from the Constitution. He embraced socialism. He embraced being a democratic socialist and said that that is the solution for the democratic parties to become more socialist. So, I'll say it, when called an Islamist, when when an American running against him decides to question whether he has ever made clear what his Islamist ideology is, he decides then to patronize and shout at the audience about how insulting it is that he was treated by a white supremacist in a bigoted mash- fashion. And as you heard, Kolbeck, now I'm not, I'm not going to say that in-, in any way I endorse whatever Kolbeck is doing. Or you know, I'm just telling you from a clinical perspective. Across the country, you're going to see candidates running in San Diego who are Muslim, candidates running in Arizona. One of the Democratic Senate uh, candidates here is is Muslim. I think every Muslim, just like the Muslim leadership that is providing information to the Homeland Security operation to create the CVE programs and other things, which is countering violent extremism, which I have a huge problem in, if you're going to become a public leadership that has a, a leading Muslim with the platform, You should be accountable to whether you believe and endorse Islamist ideology and what your strategy is for counting it, countering it. And this is how I'm going to end this segment with how Mr. Al-Sayed ended telling his audience about his feelings about Mr. Kolbeck. The
1: panel decisively and swiftly call out this kind of Islamophobia, this kind of racism, in the context, right, that they are wanting to represent a state that has the highest per capita number of Muslim Americans in the country. Now, you might not hate Muslims, but I'll tell you, Muslims definitely hate
2: you. Did you hear that? He ended his question that was asked about whether Sharia law, he was asked in the debate by the moderator whether Sharia law is, is a threat And then he responds to the last comment that Colbeck made was that he loves Muslims, but just has a problem with the Muslim Brotherhood. His response is, you might love Muslims, but Muslims definitely hate you. So listen, the reason I'm taking the time to have you listen to this this troll of a candidate is he's telling a large platform in Michigan that Muslims hate him. That the response of the Islamic community when asked about their position on Islamism is to respond not when they're told that they're loved but they're questioned in their, the- in their theopolitical ideology, but that they respond with hate. That, ladies and gentlemen, is radicalization. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a radical political ideology that will, will threaten the legacy of Americanism, and he may have cited chapter and verse of the Constitution, but he knows nothing about the Constitution, is actually using it as a weapon in which to advance his own political advancement on a platform of victimization, on a platform of, of racialization of Islam. And ultimately, I think that there's a lot to be learned here. Americans should take these opportunities, thankfully, Often, uh, candidates like this do not get significant response in the polls, uh, but there's an education there. Candidates like this may not be running to actually win the election in Michigan. They may be running to gain that 7, 8, 9, 10% to become the leadership of the Islamist tribal mentality. And they must be exposed for what they are, not whether they are particularly Democratic or Republican. But whether they are an Islamist or not. When we come back, we'll talk more about the educational value of knowing whether your Muslim leadership are Islamists or non Islamists. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This.
0: You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network,
2: Pat Gray. It's insanity. I hate this spin. The top 1% are going to control 66% of the world's wealth if
1: we don't stop them with communism. This is like a bakery. Bake your own pie. It's not just a pie. Go bake more. The ingredients are all
2: contained in a free market system. Put them together and come up with your pie, stupid. Pat Pat Gray. Gray. Weekdays from noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network.
2: This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. In our last segment, I want to start first before I uh, continue on, I think, what, what was an extraordinarily educational session at the uh, gubernatorial debate in Michigan last week. I want to wish my fellow Muslims. A blessed Ramadan. We started this week on May 16th, which happened to coincide with the first day of Ramadan this year, the beginning of our ninth month of our lunar calendar, the beginning of Ramadan, a month in which we sunrise to sunset, dawn to sunset, uh, abstain from water, food, and anything of the physical pleasures, and focus on God, focus on work, focus on scripture. And then the evening breaking our fast after a long day of thirst and hunger to remember and value what we're blessed to have in this earth, blessed to have in our health, blessed to have in our country, and our family. So as uh, Saturday now, we, we look at the fourth day of Ramadan. There's one thing that I think sort of is a metaphor that epitomizes the battle for the soul of Islam, it epitomizes it. What is that? Well, it has to do with moon sighting. Now, every year we have this debate: and when does Ramadan start? When doesn't it? Should we wait for the actual sight of the moon, or should we not? Well, this year there was a, a particular evolution of the determination of the day of the beginning of Ramadan that I think highlights the pathological tribalism that exists and the divide between east and west i have told you that this program this program bridges the large divide between the west of enlightenment and freedom and liberty individualism and the east of the islamist ideology that dominates the fundamental tribalism of of the oppression of those with critical thinking so we try to bridge that we try to take the ideas of freedom into those dominated by the islamist establishment so this year what happened the moon anyone who follows astronomy and technology you know that for over a year out you can map out exactly when the moon should be visible there's a website called MoonSighting.com that will show you at any moment where this moon and the next moon where it will be visible on what part of the world So, if you take our scripture, even if you take it literally, it says Ramadan should start when the new moon is visible to those of us, on, obviously, on Earth. Now, should it be visible to those only in Arabia, where the Prophet was? What about those of us living in the West? Should it be visible to us? Well, the Saudis, who control, obviously, there's two major holidays. The second holiday... The major holiday has to do with the 10th day of the 12th month. That's about when we do our pilgrimage to Mecca once in your lifetime. Basically, you have to take the Saudis' determination on that one, regardless of what the determination is on the beginning of the moon. But it's their Mecca, so we can't do much about debating that one. But the beginning of Ramadan, you want to fast with the people around you. You want to fast with your own community. So... The Islamic Society of North America and others say, well, when can we see it in America? Well, moon sighting shows that the moon this year was visible on Wednesday, only in the West. Only in Australia, Indonesia, and western coast of California. And even into here, into Arizona, you could see it. The Saudis, Europe, Middle East could not see the new moon until Thursday. So, we can get into a debate as to whether at the time of the Prophet in 610 CE, if the intent was to have the world divided, or should the world, which sees the new moon on different days, possibly start Ramadan on different days? And I would tell you, That since the celebration of holidays, the beginning of the fast of Ramadan is about community. While I reject a community connected to a state identity, which is the only way to separate mosque and state. I believe that's more of a universal concept of national identity rather than one particular faith. I do believe that one of the purposes of Ummah, faith community, is to determine when your holidays are. When you celebrate common respect of tradition and of Quran and and scripture etc so there is no better metaphor I think for us to, to understand when you look on arabnews.com on the front it showed the Saudis sitting on a beach or somewhere with telescopes out looking for the moon and it said they could not find it today so therefore Ramadan will start on Thursday May 17 meanwhile we were already fasting in the United States, because the Moon was visible to certain folks on the West Coast. And anybody with three brain cells can go to Moonsighting.com and could have told themselves six months ago when the Moon would be visible and that ARC was known. So there is no better metaphor of the separation of East and West than those. And the hypocrisy of the Salafi. Salafi meaning those who return to the time of the friends of the Prophet and will only do things exactly the way they do it, so therefore they believe they could see the moon with their eye. Well, it's fascinating that the Saudis who think that you have to see it with your eye, they don't care if between the eye and the sky is a 21st century telescope worth tens of thousands of dollars in order to see that. Oh, forget about that. That, that doesn't matter. That's a little technicality. Forget about that they use 21st century medical science to stay alive, 21st century computer science and communication science with chips to communicate between one another. We will still use 7th century religious science to tell us how to figure out when the new moon and the lunar calendar starts. There is no better metaphor than to see, and that metaphor goes on. The Islamist organizations, which are still theopolitically all about political Islam, like the Islamic side of North America, still, they may not be as extreme and fundamental and Salafi jihadi as the Saudi groups. But yet, they put out sheepishly, we will start Ramadan on Wednesday, ignoring any criticism of the Saudis referring people passive-aggressively to sites that talk about where you can see the moon. They should pass a fatwa saying that it is imperative that we follow 21st century science. It is a rejection of modernity and reason to continue to use a reliance upon the eye, the naked eye, to determine when the lunar calendar starts. But no. Even the American Muslim organizations, probably because most of them have been still swimming in cash from Talal bin Walid and other Saudi funders. Maybe because many of them have an inferiority complex to the long-bearded, long-robed octogenarians in Saudi Arabia who determine when and how we should interpret our Qur'an and our tradition. This has to change. So in the West, even the Islamists who try to modernize their interpretation of Islam, especially beginning with moonsighting, are still taking orders now. They ultimately, because, thank God, the Saudis did nothing to do with our government and our society, so even the American Islamists decided to reject what the Saudis started and started their Ramadan on the day they could see the moon, because it just could not make sense not to do otherwise. Now, does that mean that's what every American Muslim did? No, there are many fundamentalists interpreting uh, Muslims in America that decided to start on Thursday because they want to follow Saudi Arabia, who is the tribal leader of our faith community. Not only did I reject that, but they need to take it beyond moon sighting and start talking about female genital mutilation start talking about how much weight the vote of a woman, the witness of a woman gets in a court, how much property rights a woman has compared to a man that should be equal, how much inheritance rights a woman gets, how much rights to free speech those who reject Islam have to speak out in their rejection, or their blasphemy, or their rights to build churches and synagogues and elsewhere. So this process is one that is a slippery slope that will take us down into freedom if we begin to demand of American Muslims who live and breathe free exercise in America, do not only do that exercise by beginning Ramadan on the day that makes sense to them, but also take on the responsibility of positioning themselves as the alternative, And the reform-minded folks versus the Saudis. So this is how you can tell that Isna, while it may be more moderate than the Saudis, is still an Islamist because they don't openly take on the Saudi Wahhabis. They don't openly reject the Muslim Brotherhood, which brings me to end on the point from the last segment, which is that if you're going to be a political or a theological leader in America and you're Muslim, the benefits come with having more attention come to you as a result of the global threat of radical Islam And the responsibility comes from the fact that a microscope is appropriate to find out if you are an Islamist ideologically, and if you will help this country defeat the threat of theocratic Islam, or you will become an apologist who will make us less safe. So in my Ramadan this month, I vow to not only take this time to become more spiritual, to get closer to God and closer to family, but also to reflect on what I can do to leave a legacy that empowers our Muslim children and grandchildren to not feel shy, to take on the Saudis, to take on the Brotherhood, to take on the Taliban and the Islamist leaders, and confront them with logic and rationale and critical thinking about everything from sighting to the illegitimacy of any Islamic state or Sharia state. Have a blessed Ramadan. May God accept your fast. And your prayers and your supplication. I look forward to seeing you all next week. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This.
0: Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.